This is WOWDLP Tacoma Park. Welcome to the Artist Experience Radio Show on 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. This is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter. Well, it's Labor Day weekend, and Washington is filled with happy tourists. And so we decided to drive downtown to the Smithsonian American Art Museum and join the crowd. We've been mentioned this before, but with all the new awareness of diversity, we've been pulled, kicking and screaming, into such different kinds of art. And this is what's so satisfying about doing this show. It's a lot of hard work, ever expanding our own tastes and boundaries. So this show, titled We Are Made of Stories, that's on at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, went up in July, and it will be there until March 2023. That gives us plenty of time, and there's so much to take in that you definitely will want to visit many times. This work was admired and collected by Margaret Z. Robson, and Margaret valued the artworks and personal stories of artists who were self-taught, believing they offered a truer, more complete portrait of our nation's visual creators, and best of all, redefined who could be an artist in America. When Margaret Robson died, her son, Douglas O. Robson, has continued to collect the work of self-taught artists and to support an inclusive vision of art. In 2016, he donated 93 works from the collection to the Smithsonian American Art Museum. The exhibition features this original gift, along with 32 artworks that he has promised to Sam and a major painting by the artist Dan Miller. And that's something that I'm going to talk about later. It's a fabulous painting. Right. So kicking and screaming, huh? Yeah. I also thought, oh, we've seen a lot of outsider art recently. There have been several exhibitions in town over the past 10 years. So I thought maybe this will be the same old Jimmy Crack Corn, but right from the start, it was fresh and new. The title for the exhibition has the word stories, and that's accurate. It's what I was wondering right away. Who made this? What kind of person? At the start of the exhibition is a cast iron sculpture of a man with a hat. You know, last week we talked about Picasso's man with a hat. This piece here was maybe 14 inches tall, a lot simpler than Picasso, but there was something about it, as you would expect, for a piece in the Smithsonian, something remarkable and hard to pin down. 
It had an early American kind of look to it. Artist Anonymous. The text on the wall said that the identities of a lot of early folk artists simply did not survive over the generations, whereas well-off families had records. They knew very well who made the piece on the mantle. But I got to thinking right away, what would it take in rural America in maybe the 19th century to be able to cast molten iron into a sculpture? This is not something that somebody picks up as a hobby. The ability to melt iron in a crucible, then pour it into a mold, it takes a workshop. I thought about maybe a man who cast iron pots for a living, maybe a former slave somewhere in Maryland or Pennsylvania where coke would be readily available. Casting this piece, and after passing through many hands, it is purchased by the collector and donated to the Smithsonian. And you know, that's part of the joy of going to museums here in Washington, D.C., the freedom to speculate in all of the pieces you see in this exhibit, you are drawn into speculation. How was life like for this artist? Had this artist seen the high European art somewhere? And the answers are not important. The speculation itself is a form of wonder. You wonder, how did this beauty come into being out of the byways of America? Near the man with a hat is an iron trivet hammered by a blacksmith into a swelling spiral of a coiled snake. And I think of our son Hill, who has a blacksmith furnace, hammers and an anvil, how he is compelled to create objects that amaze you. So this compulsion to amaze is shared by all the creators in this show. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> so we need to ask the question, what is self-taught? It could be never having gone to art school, never having formal art training, or not to have been exposed to the European traditions that we think of as high art. And that's surely true of a lot of these artists. And there's such a range from the most primitive art of Howard Finster, who's crying for attention, or Sister Gertrude Morgan's fervent religiosity, to the work of Bill Trailer, who was born into slavery and became an artist when he was 85, and whose pictures are sophisticated and funny. And then there's Joseph E. Yoakum, whose drawings in a ballpoint pen, colored pencil, and pastel that he displayed in the windows of his Southside Chicago home echoes modernist American landscapes like Grant Wood and Marston Hartley, and they were collected by prominent Chicago artists, the Art Chicago Imagist Group, who came out of the Chicago Art Institute, and they use repetitive flat images in a cartoon way to make political points, and they supported and channeled Yoakum's vision into their own. So there really is this exchange of ideas it's really hard to put these artists into the same category, all of these artists in the show, because they and we live in a world filled with pictures, and sometimes magazine images found their way into collages, like the eyes of a model from an advertisement glued onto a big white dog made out of cornmeal and enamel. And 
Just like as the title of this exhibit says, we are made out of our stories, we are also made of all the images we have seen through our whole lives. Of course, influences are what makes art so rich, and recognizing those influences is part of the delight of looking at art. So Bill Trailer, he was born a slave in 1853 in Alabama, and until he was 75, he lived in rural Alabama, living and working on a cotton plantation, and when he was no longer enslaved, he moved to segregated Montgomery. He moved to the bright lights of the big city, and he worked in a shoe factory, and then he, he lived in a shack, but he had rheumatism, and it prevented him from continuing to work. He was not a nomad, but he was homeless, and he slept in the back of Ross Clayton's funeral home. It was at the center of the African-American community, and he received a small stipend of assistance. He set up a little table and began his artistic venture. So he was 85, and he began to make a visual record of everything he's noticed and seen and reflected on. Talk about stories. He has a lot to tell. He never learned to read, but he made many pictures of people reading or writing, holding up a board with a few letters, thinking about writing. And maybe that's why he developed his visual language, a record of his life. He sat at a table at the corner of a storefront. Yes, he could be considered a primitive or outsider artist, but his work has the amazing formal qualities of shape, composition, and negative shape. And he was doing these drawings at the same time as Matisse was doing his cut papers and Calder, his mobiles and his uh, his animals cut out of tin. And like Calder, he had a sense of humor. And now the trailer's work is considered the work of a fine artist, period. Trailer had two or three wives, more than 20 children, and from 1942 to 1945, he lived with his, his children and other relatives in Detroit, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, Delaware. When he lost his leg to gangrene, he went back to Montgomery to live with his daughter, Sally. He died in 1949 and was buried there. The surprising thing is how good these are. They're so damn expressive and also full of life, drinking, fighting, arguing, animals chasing each other in fury. It is surprising how good they are. The the silhouette figures have a specific distortion that is eloquent. They might remind you of the silhouette figures on ancient Greek pottery with the emphasis on the eyes and the chin. Those Greek figures don't mean much to me. They're warriors, gods, and serving women. But Trailer's figures express personalities that we recognize. The sharp, scolding anger of the seated woman, the loose, pliant, uncontrolled sprawl of the drinker with a jug. (laughs) You, You know, I didn't realize this until we did this show is slave owners had silhouettes made of the people they enslaved in order to document them as property Mm -hmm. and in order to accompany other business documents such as the bill of sale. But it's uncanny uncanny how much Trailer has learned or intuited, not just of the silhouettes like Carl Walker, who comes from the art of this time, Carrie James Marshall, who also uses silhouettes, but especially Calder, because there's the drinking bottle, the top hat, and there are the lines of cave paintings. And 
and similar gestures to Matisse. And then Seurat, in his lovely Connie Crayon drawings, they have the same spare attention to shape. It's crazy about what was in him, that he was driven to do these things. And through his work, you can see him trying to figure out how to draw when he was 85. And you can see him repeating the same scenes, the same dramas, thousands of drawings. Most of them were lost to the streets, getting it better and better. And, and how funny he was, too. Right, right. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD, Tacoma Radio. We're talking today about an exhibit at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. The show is titled, We Are Made of Stories, Self-Taught Artists in the Robson Family Collection. The show is up until March 2023. Well, it's so interesting that you mentioned Matisse. He's on our minds these days because we're preparing a show for him, on him for the near future. But there is a sort of convergence that is really interesting because Matisse, already highly trained and recognized, was working around, oh, let's say around 1905, working away from modeling the form and depth of objects to utilizing the power of decorative pattern and vibrant color operating on a very high plane, way above the heads of the esteemed art public, he was working his way towards what we might call the primitive power of color. And all through this show, you see how these folk artists, if we can call them that, uh, who of course could not do what Matisse could do, nevertheless found their own way to the primitive power of color and pattern. Yeah. And these artists had crayons and enamel paint and not the incredibly subtle range of Sennelier paints and pastels that were available to the artists of Europe. There are artists in the show who are familiar and have attained the status of artists, not outsider artists, but artists. And Bill Trailer, as I said, is one of them. Another is Dan Miller. Miller was born in Castro Valley in California. He's on the autism spectrum, and his grandmother, when he was young, worked so hard to help him develop language, and that left him with a concept of written language that later provided the underlying structure of his work. He joined the Creative Growth Arts Center, which is a nonprofit arts organization based in Oakland, California. They provide studios, supplies, and gallery space to artists with developmental, mental, and physical disabilities. It is one of the oldest and largest art centers for people with disabilities in the world. Dan Miller has been creating there for 25 years, and his work is astonishing. Dan Miller spends the majority of each day drawing, painting, typing, and in other ways rendering a dizzying array of letters and numbers into layered abstractions. Names of objects, food items, cities, friends, family members, and other details of life dwell in these works, but their legibility is almost always completely obliterated by this obsessive overlapping of words. In 2010, Time Out New York's Anne Duren wrote, and I'm going to quote this here, Miller's astonishing works fuse compulsive documentation with gestural abstraction, their autobiographical content dispersed like sand in water in a non-objective field. Dan Miller is 
the most renowned living artist at the Creative Growth. He spent a lot of time as a kid in his uncle's hardware store, so items like light bulbs and paint sprayers convey his ideas and memories. His large painting in this show, which is about two and a half feet by eight feet, is spectacular. The black letters, those black overwritten letters that are the underpinnings are like a complicated scaffolding, which is thin at the edges and gets denser and denser toward the middle, with dense patches that are undefined dark shapes with overlapping letters. There are the diagonals and circles in turquoise and pink and Prussian blue, and a kind of beautiful ochre and a red ochre gold, and the colors that the overlapping letters make until it's a dense, rich, and beautiful vision that you can enter into and wander and climb around it. It is a great painting. And it is echoes of Mark Toby, who is a, a color field artist who also uses calligraphy. But this is so much richer and more beautiful. And it's never repetitive or boring. As I got to say, Toby's art can be pretty boring. And, of course, <laughs> there's Jackson Pollock. Another work is on a paper with a wash of letters and signs and blue and red and then swirls of circular stitches that seem to whirl and twirl in the air. And, I mean, they whirl. Right, you get dizzy. It, yeah, it has this dizzying effect. And I have to wonder if the teachers at the art center where Miller spends most of his days coached him in any way or they just made it possible for him to do what he wants. In the film that I watched, you see the, the uh, teachers there, and they just make sure he has what he wants. He has an array of markers and paints and whatever else he needs. He also makes sculptures. There are two big turquoise light bulbs using paper mache and those 32-ounce cans that usually have tomato sauce in them that work as part, uh, the cans work as part of the light bulb that screws into the socket. He's totally, totally engaged. His sense of color combinations is gorgeous. And really, for an artist, what could be better being taken care of, listened to, and admired, with nothing else he has to do but paint and create this beautiful work? Like Kusama, who has a similar setup only in a hospital. And even though they're different in every way, except that Dan wears a blue helmet and Kusama has bright orange hair that looks like a helmet, which is probably a wig. <laughs> right. Dan Miller's work is stunning. Maybe the highlight of the show. And as you say, you can't help comparing it to the masters of abstract expressionism. It's different from their work, uh, but I couldn't help thinking about the difference. When you know Dan Miller's story, it makes sense. You see his story in the art, as you can see the struggle of mid-century American painters meeting their moment with a rebellious form of modernism. But they all created beautiful work. Yeah, they did. But this Dan Miller's work is really, I got to say, it's a total surprise. And uh, also... In the exhibit, there are memory jugs, which have embedded in the crockery mem mementos of the person, of a specific person. They have mm. glass fragments, pottery. Is Finsters? No. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That, okay. Um, there are shells, 
there's a chess piece, teeth, extracted teeth, upholstery tacks, a screw, glass beads, a beautiful arrow, arrowhead. Mm. And they are there to remember someone who is loved and honored. Well, just before we left the museum, we went up to the third floor to the 20th century collection to see my old friend, the artist Gregory Gillespie's tomb, too. He killed himself in 2000. He did, uh, we did a whole show on Gregory in the early spring. We had been told that the jug at the bottom of Gregory's construction was for his ashes. And in fact, it says with an arrow, ashes here. But the museum couldn't allow that. Yeah, wow, his ashes. A true funeral urn with the artist's ashes to be interned in the Smithsonian. What a dream. Somewhat narcissistic. But the museum said no. So I don't think there are any ashes in there. I don't think you could slip that by them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Some night I'll creep in there and see. Okay. Uh, well, this is WOWD Tacoma Radio, the Artist Experience Radio Show. I'm Sheila Blake, here with Peter Blake, discussing the new exhibition of outsider folk self-taught artists at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. We're going to take a short break and be back. Some bright morning when this life is Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today with my husband, Peter Blake. We're talking today about the new exhibit at Washington, D.C.'s Smithsonian American Art Museum. The exhibit is entitled We Are Made of Stories, Self-Taught Artists in the Robson Family Collection. The show is up until March 2023. So I want to talk about the Norman Foster Atrium. It's a great place to relax with a cup, coffee, or a glass of wine before going to the show. You know, I've walked and stood and sat and had coffee under that glass canopy so many, many times, and I never really saw it. I mean, I'd look up and I love, you know, it's huge and it it covers the entire courtyard. And I saw it as a giant skylight, but it is a geometric wonder. In fact, I knew that Norman Foster designed it, but I never really saw it before. It's a phenomenon of looking at art that after I had been looking at this art, then it changes and stimulates your vision. So I saw it in a fresh new way. It's really wonderful. 
Yeah, I, I had the same experience. So that's interesting, your interpretation, that it's, it's seeing the art. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. we walked out of the exhibit into the atrium, and we looked up, and we were astonished. Yes. Yeah, even so, though we'd been there before. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. So when you go into the museum and make a right turn at the information desk, there's a changing exhibit of the museum's new acquisitions. And some, they've been there for a while. And this one is about the partnership of artists. We often think, think that artists work in solitary confinement. We think of artists as, uh, you know, a painter confronting a black blank canvas alone with his studio door shut. Yet few artists thrive in a social vac vacuum. Even those who prefer to work in private will always find other artists for myriad reasons, for mentorship and inspiration and practical assistance. And a sense of solidarity or shared purpose for friends. Artists are often each other's first and most important audience, and that's where they get their vital support before the critics or the curators or the collectors arrive on a scene. Two artists caring about one another's work is fundamental to the creation of any art world, large or small. So in this particular exhibit, there are eight pairings and that are assembled from the museum's 20th century holdings. These eight pairings are Miguel Luciano and Juan Sanchez, George Tooker and Paul Cadmus, Lois Milu Jones and Elizabeth Catlett, Frank O'Hara and Grace Hardigan, Yusuo Kuniyoshi and Bumpai Usai, Thomas Hart Benton and Jackson Pollock, Joan Brown and Elmer Bischoff, and Ray Yoshida and Christina Ramberg. Each pairing represents two artists whose trajectories intersect at a creatively crucial moment, either a student and teacher, professional allies, or close friends. The personal interactions that are represented by these works help shape and sustain American art. So those works were sort of a great appetizer uh, for us. And, and they would work as an appetizer to any show at the museum. It's amazing, really, that the folk art in We Are Made of Stories ex exhibition can stand up to the high art. Is that what we call it, the high art? Okay, I have to talk about this because it keeps coming up, this coincidence of high and low art. And here it is. The last broadcast, we talked about Jasper John's American Flag series. Well, Eddie Arning of Austin, Texas, was introduced to drawing by an occupational therapist and made a large body of drawings of images he found in magazines, and he depicted many American flags. Many. And it was at the same time that Jasper Johns did his own flag paintings. Only Eddie Arning didn't count the stars and stripes. If you remember, at least I remember, when I was in grade school and you have to count the 13 stripes and it's like, oh, no, I need to add two more stripes. <laughs> and then the 48 states, which became 50 stars, and, and it was always hard to keep track of. But he didn't bother. He had, I think, 
whatever amount of stripes. And then he had like, I don't know, 20 stars, 25 stars, something like that. And, uh, and the flag is backwards. And with the same coloring kind of that Jasper Johns did filling in the lines with crayon. And I think I might like it even better than a Jasper Johns because of its innocence. And you liked the Jasper Johns. I did. I love it. Yeah. High art, studio art. We need some non-judgmental terms for distinguishing different traditions. Uh, categories are always difficult. It's almost impossible to get rid of the mistaken attitudes that get dragged in with every term. Yeah, breaking down these distinctions is one of them because you've stayed is one of them because you've stayed in a mental hospital or struggled with mental illness because that would include, to name a few, Vincent van Gogh, Leonora Carrington, Francisco Doya, Goya and Edward Munch, and Georgia O'Keeffe, and Michelangelo, and Edgar Degas, Mark Rothko, and a terrific young artist named Tracy Emin, who aligns herself very close to Munch. Her emotional distress is a long-running theme in her art, her 1998 installation, My Bed, which was first shown at the Tate Gallery in 1999, recreates a brutally personal bedroom scene showing a disheveled bed surrounded by items such as discarded tights, cigarettes, and used condoms. Interesting. Though I'd say emotional distress is not much in evidence in this show. It's mostly one person's collection, and she tended to go for emotional uplift. Case in point, uh, the David Butler pieces of sheet metal, incised and painted. At first, they didn't make much of an impression. Did you get a look at them? Yeah, I did, and then I had to really look at what they were. They're fabulous. Okay, so I'm going to just describe. There's a, sh a sheet metal shape of a chicken or a cock, and it's it's sort of not crudely but not too carefully cut out of sheet metal and then you realize that the light that is projected on that image creates the layers of shadows that look like movement so the artist had to be able to know how the beautiful shadows would project while the sun is moving yeah what what struck me first is the piece called three wise men and a goat. There's three figures plus the goat. They don't look like men at all, more like spirits. But, okay, so that, I mean, this is a piece of sheet metal, like it flew off a roof in a storm. The, the space around the legs is cut out, and the legs are sort of dangling there in the space. It looked very cool and very strange. Above it is another sheet metal piece with holes cut, in it, each hole outlined with a green circle and a sort of a demon in the center. When I read the title Reindeer, I realized the demon was a reindeer and the holes were snowflakes. Uh, then I read the wall text and learned that these pieces were examples of a spiritual art form called a yard show. The painted and incised sheet metal would be hung over a window and the sun would shine through moving across the floor and walls. A black Atlantic tradition by way of Africa. Benevolent spirits were welcomed, evil spirits rebuffed, and ancestors honored. Mm. 
And just for complete contrast, there were extremely difficult, detailed architectural drawings, very refined. They were made of graphite, ink, and watercolor by Achilles Rizzoli. And they're perfectly rendered as real Italian architectural drawings. Only the inscription says, the palace of God is building for that winsome little girl, no less a pearl, even for an earl. Margaret E. Griffin, symbolically sketched. Well, this Achilles Rosoli would invent these palaces for people that he loved or knew. And I didn't know what to make of these. Like, what is this an ins- outsider artist? He was born in Point Reyes, California. He lived in San Francisco, where he worked as an architectural draftsman. In the 1930s, he showed his work in exhibits that he held in his home, which he called the Achilles Tectonic Exhibit Portfolio, the A-T-E-P. After his death, they found a group of elaborate drawings, many in the form of maps and architectural renderings that described an imaginary world exposition, some of which was titled Y-T-T-E, or Yield to Total Elation. The drawings include portraits of his mother, whom he lived with until his de- her death in 1937, and neighborhood children symbolically sketched in the form of fanciful neo-Baroque buildings. So you understand that each of these buildings was created to symbolize somebody that he loved or admired. One of the artists I really liked was William Edmondson, who carved small sculptures out of limestone, grave markers, and a bird bath. Uh, We had seen this work before in some other exhibit here. I read the label, saw that it had been given several years ago by the same Robson family. There's a small figure called Teacher, which shows a woman with massive curly hair, and the body is simply a block with incised drawing lines. The whole thing looking very modern, like maybe it was British mid-century modernism. The incised lines for her arm ended with her holding a book, which was the marker for a teacher, someone exalted in Edmonston's world. I just loved it. I also thought, hmm, that is so simple, I could copy it if I knew how to carve stone. Edmonston used a railroad spike. Perhaps I could copy it. Wouldn't that be cool? I don't know whether his beauty could be copied by a beginner, but looking at it, you believe you could do it. It's inspiring. And a lot of this art is inspiring in the same way. Although I must say, once you found a copy uh, on an art store canvas of a Bill Trailer painting, but it didn't have the special fascination of the real thing. I don't know why. Yeah, I kept it for a while. Because I thought it was a, almost a bill trailer, <laughs> but then it wasn't. Yeah. So I decided to throw it away. It, I got to avoid all this clutter. Right. So the title of this exhibition is We Are Made of Stories. The William 
Edmonston sculpture of a teacher, the Bill Troiler silhouettes, the sculptures made out of tree roots. These pieces do tell stories, or rather they prod you with their strangeness and authenticity and reference to a life very different from yours, and the stories spring up in your mind. Yeah, well, you know, maybe that's the best def- definition of pure abstraction. No stories. Right. It reminds me of the poetry of Langston Hughes, who was not a folk artist. He was a excellent student at Columbia University who studied and learned from the other great American poets, but he chose a simplified style. It was full of the same life as these pieces in the exhibit, including observations of the street life of Harlem. Like Walt Whitman, he heard America singing, full of aesthetic and erotic desire. Okay, this is a poem entitled by Langston, that is its title, by Langston Hughes. Her great adventure ended, as great adventures should, in life being created anew and good. Except the neighbors and her mother did not think it good. Nature has a way of not caring much about marriage, licenses, and such. But the neighbors and her mother cared very much. The baby came one morning, almost with the sun. The neighbors and its grandma were outdone. But mother and child thought it fun. So many of these desires that Langston Hughes talked about were unfulfilled. So here's The conservatory student struggles with higher instrumentation. The saxophone has a vulgar tone. I wish it would let me alone. The saxophone is ordinary. More than that, it's mercenary. The saxophone's an instrument by which I wish I'd never been sent. Oh boy. <laughs> I was married to a saxophone player and I I wanted to melt down all the saxophones into a big pile of brass. But now I don't feel that way at all. In fact, I have in my mind a enormous repertoire of saxophone uh you know, jazz mm-hmm. pieces that I love. And so maybe that saxophone has something to do with my marriage. It might have. Um, But I want to talk about Judith Scott because she is really featured in this exhibit. Judith Scott and her twin sister Joyce were born into a middle-class family in Cincinnati, Ohio. And unlike her sister, Judith had Down syndrome. She also lost her hearing after an attack of scarlet fever, but this wasn't recognized for years. So the first seven years, the twins, Judith and Joyce, they had an idyllic country childhood, but Judith lived without words. And so because her deafness went undiagnosed, Judith was only tested verbally. And as a result, she was considered ineducable. 
Her fate was sealed, and when she was seven years old, her parents, who were acting on medical advice, made the difficult decision to send her away because her undiagnosed deafness was misinterpreted as severe retardation. She would spend the next 36 years separated from her family as a ward of the state of Ohio in Dickensian institutions. So in 1986, Judith's twin Joyce had an epiphany, a moment of clarity, and she took it upon herself to become Judith's legal guardian after long and complex negotiations and over the objections of their mother, Judith went to live with Joyce and her family in California, and in time, she moved to a nearby board and care home. And soon after, she was enrolled in the Oakland Center for Creative Growth, the same center that Dan Miller, who I talked about before, uh, went to. And it's the first organization to provide studio facilities to artists with disabilities. For almost two years, Judith had no evidence of any artistic interest or ability. And then he, she observed a class that was being given by a visiting fiber artist. And Judith spontaneously began to create the unique sculptures for which she has since become famous. Um, Judith's innate talent was quickly recognized, and she was allowed the freedom to scour the facility for whatever materials she needed. Nothing was ignored, and objects of every size and shape, both private and public, were gathered up. And day by day, week by week, and sometimes for months on end, these prizes, they could be anything. They could be a dustpan or a broom or a vacuum cleaner, would be gradually wrapped, woven, and entwined in fabrics and fibers of carefully selected hues until Judith, and Judith alone, decided the piece was complete. Work would immediately begin on the next sculpture, which might be small, but more often would grow to be almost unmanageable in size, some reaching nine feet in length. They have some large ones in this exhibit. Within the core of each piece would be hidden a special talisman of its significance, only known to Judith alone. With unflagging intensity, Judith worked five days a week for 18 years, producing over 200 cocoon-like sculptures, which today are found in museum collections around the world. Judith died in her sister's arms in March 2005, having lived 49 years be beyond her allotted span at birth, the last 18 in blissful, unrestrained creativity. So that's a pretty compelling story. When I first saw her small pieces, they were pretty awful. I have to say I saw them some years ago, and they just looked like a bunch of scraps, like really ugly stuff, foam, rubber, yarn, and, you know, wrapped all together with twine or or colored string or something. And I just had this visceral, visceral repulsion of garbage. But these larger pieces, which make more sculptural sense, yes, they were obsessive, but somehow what was inside the wrapped things, like mummified creatures, I'm not saying they are nothing, not at all. But I still have a weird response to them, like mummified. And and I still have somewhat of a repulsion, which might be a good thing. 
but Christo, she's not. Mm-hmm. And that raises this most important question. Is the art intrinsically valuable without the story? Should it be? And in the exhibit where there's there's an unknown wire sculptor, he's called the Wire Man, and he lives somewhere in Philadelphia, and he wraps objects in wire and leaves them to be found. And they're very much the obsessive quality of wrapping mm. that Judith Scott has. Mm-hmm. And there's some kind of similar impulse there. Yeah. Well, you know, in response to Judith Scott's works, you know, each viewer is going to have their own reaction. Uh, like we always say, you're free to respond however you respond. Don't censor yourself, even if you don't like something or or you feel it's uh, repulsive but interesting. Um, you know, I do think that Judith Scott's story is an essential element in in experiencing her work. The great sorrow of her life, and then it's the reversal into great happiness. Um, which brings up another poem by Langston Hughes, Island. Wave of sorrow, do not drown me now. I see the island still ahead somehow. I see the island and its sands are fair. Wave of sorrow, take me there. It is perfect. Yeah. Perfect point. So the last piece I have to talk about is Demolition of St. Mary's Church, Boston, a large painting in enamel on a board, I think, of an old church in the North End, which was being demolished to make space for apartments. It was by William Hawkins, who wrote at the bottom, William Hawkins, born KY, 1895, I guess born in Kentucky, um, and that's the identical s- signature as the first painting of the, in the show, the one of a white dog with the um, collaged eyes that you spoke about. So it's the same guy. But this one seemed to have a sophisticated modernistic dynamic with deep cathedral spaces leaning away from a figure with a cane in the foreground in the snow, black, just a black figure who's also leaning in the same direction in the snow and he's got a collaged hat on and I couldn't help wondering the date um, of the painting was 1985 Boston he lived in Boston of course he went to the their excellent museum the Boston Museum of Art of course he did he saw modern paintings and said to himself, hmm, not bad, I'll try that. Now, I don't know whether this is true, but like I said, we're free to speculate, and it's so rewarding to speculate, I don't know why. I think speculation is the first half of science and philosophy, the fun part. Well, I think you'll love this show. It's so much invention. It's funnier than most shows, and really entertaining. There's stuff to wonder about. No work is involved here in looking at this show. None. Which is, you know, in so many shows, you have to really, like, rise up your normal state of consciousness Mm -hmm. to attain a certain 
way of seeing or thinking that the artist demands of you. But in this, there's no one. You just stay right there, right on the ground with yourself and enjoy this show. And I'm sure you want to go many times because there's just so much. Right. And we hope you've enjoyed our show. Sheila, what, what, what are we going to do for our next show? Well, we're talking about Matisse. Matisse. Yeah, we That's... may go at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Right, and our listeners should know also that your new paintings will be on exhibit here in Washington, D.C. at the Foundry Gallery, September 30th through all of October. Oh, yeah, thanks for mentioning it. Oh, yeah, my show. (laughs) I'm so excited about my show. It's called Memory is a Funny Thing. I'd love for our listeners to come and see it at the Foundry Gallery. Just check it up online, Foundry Gallery, Washington, D.C. Right. So our music going out, which will lead you all to Bobby Hill's show at 10 o'clock, this music is by Herbie Hancock, who said this piece, Maiden Voyage, here it's in a duet with Chick Corea, is his go-to piece, if he's only going to play one. The rhythm came to him out of nowhere, but he couldn't figure out how it could develop. So he took himself in hand and listened to the fragment over and over, until it told him how to finish it. I think that is a description of what some of these artists experienced. So stay tuned. Coming up, this music from 10 a.m. until 1, Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other music that's entirely improvised. No standards, no standard repertoire. On alternate Sunday evenings from 8 to 10, our friend Gail Behrens hosts Night Ride Home. This show features singer-songwriters and alternative and indie bands. Just good songwriting. In this time slot next week, listen to Lost Treasures. DJ Mackey spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international And on Wednesday mornings from 10 a.m. to noon, Borderlines, another show with a Joni Mitchell theme song, No Border, No Lines. Like we were saying earlier in this show, it's so important to ease and erase the boundaries, the categorizations, the borderlines. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.